Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumboldt.org. Titus was a young pastor. Um, He had been traveling with Paul as a missionary. Paul had a, um, a mode of operation. He would go to a city where there were no Christians, preach the gospel, and people would surrender to Jesus. People would turn to Jesus and, and become Christians. And that those Christians would gather and form a church. So Paul was a church planter. And so Paul would establish these churches And once a church was established, he would move on to the next city and he would repeat the process. But everywhere that Paul left, he left behind someone to continue to build up that church and to help that church to be and remain healthy. And that was Titus. Titus came with Paul to Crete and then Paul left Titus in Crete to continue the work that they had begun together. Crete was an island in the Mediterranean, and in Titus chapter 1, Paul quotes one of the Cretan poets, and that Cretan poet describes his fellow countrymen, describes his community this way. He said in chapter 1, verse 12, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. It's not, not very kind words. He's, he's honest and, and real about his, his country. And Tim Chester, a, an author, summarizes what, Paul, what this man says about the Cretans. He said, Crete was a dishonest, harsh, selfish culture. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Things don't change. We could easily describe American culture in 2021 as dishonest, harsh, and selfish. Humans are the same now as they were 2,000 years ago. The circumstances have changed, but the people are the same. And so we can identify with this letter. We can identify with with what Paul is telling Titus because these things matter for us. And so in the midst of this dishonest, harsh, selfish culture, Titus is seeking to establish this little church and to keep this church healthy and growing and faithful to God. And so Paul gives Titus directions. In chapter 1, Paul tells Titus to gather a group of godly men who can serve as elders in the church. And so he tells Titus the character traits of these men. They're supposed to be men who are above reproach and able to give, give instruction in sound doctrine to rebuke those who contradict it. So establish these elders. Chapter 2, Paul tells Titus how the church should relate to itself, how people within the church should relate Older men and younger men, older women and younger women, how they should interact with each other as a church. Older men discipling younger men, uh, older women discipling younger women, younger people treating older people with honor. And then in chapter 3, 
Paul tells Titus how the church, how this little group of believers should relate to outsiders, how they should relate to unbelievers in their community. And so that's what we're going to look at here in Titus 3. In a, in a dishonest, harsh, and selfish culture, how should we as Christians relate to those outside? Let's read Titus 3, 1 through 8. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This, these eight verses are structured in this way. Verses 1 and 2 and verse 8 are bookends, where Paul tells the church what reputation and what character traits they should be cultivating in the community. So 1 and 2 and 8 is, this is how you should look to the unbelievers around you. And then inside of that, verse 3, Paul shows the, his readers and shows us who we were before Christ and who we are now apart from Christ. And then in verses 5 through 7, he talks about the gospel. This, this is who you were, and now this is what God has done for you to save you. So let's, let's unpack that. We're going to start in verse 3. Paul starts with the bad news. This is who you were before Christ. This, this list, is, it's not a comfortable list to read, and it's not a comfortable list to have someone point at you. Paul describes us as foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to our passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. This is an honest, realistic assessment of humanity apart from Jesus. And Paul means for us to see ourselves in this verse. Paul's holding up a mirror so that we can see who we really are. And it hurts. It, it's uncomfortable. We don't like it. And passages like this are all over in the New Testament. Jesus talks about us this way. Paul, Peter, John, they, it's, it's everywhere where we're, we're told who we really are apart from Jesus. And the reason that it's there, it's, it's meant to humble us. It, it's, meant, it's meant so that we can see ourselves rightly, so that we can then find redemption in Jesus. So there's, there's the effort to humble someone, and then there's the effort to humiliate someone. When you're seeking to humiliate someone, you want to bring them down a few pegs, and you don't care what happens afterwards. You just want to 
bring shame on them. You just want them to see how bad they are and how bad you think they are. And then you're ready to walk away. You don't care what happens next. When you want to humble someone, you want to be honest with them. You want to tell them what you see, even if it hurts, even if it's hard to hear. But then you want to offer them redemption. Jesus always comes to us in an effort to humble us, never to humiliate us. When, when Jesus comes and tells us the truth, he wants to come right after it and say, and I can make it better. I can fix it. If you'll agree with me, if you'll be honest about who you really are, I can help you. Which, which means that, well, first let me say this. Not only is this who we were before Jesus, this is who we are now if we're not abiding in Jesus. It's easy, I think the temptation for us sometimes is to say, oh yeah, yeah, before I became a Christian, here's the bad stuff I did. But, not, but, that's, but now I'm, I'm better. Now, now, I'm, now I'm a good person. And that should be increasingly true as, as we grow in our walk with Christ. But we're always prone to drift right back to verse 3. It's easy for us to jump back into our former way of life when we're not walking in obedience. So, for example, I, I gave my life to Christ when I was young. I was probably 9 or 10 years old when I trusted Jesus. And so I have done more sinning as a Christian than I did before I was a Christian, right? It's just math. I've, I've been a Christian longer than I haven't. And I was little before I became a Christian. And so I've had opportunity now as an adult to be a doofus, right? And so I need to be reminded regularly that but for the grace of God, this is me today, this week, we, we need to remind ourselves that if I'm not trusting in Jesus, I'm going to go right back into my sin. And so we need this progressive sanctification to happen. We need to walk with Jesus daily, to be renewed daily by Jesus, or we're just going to find ourselves right back where we were. So that, that ought to humble us. When, when we look at ourselves in verse, and when we see ourselves in verse 3, we're not going to look at other people and their sin and say, you dirty, rotten sinner, because we can identify with them. We can say, yeah, that's me too. That was me, and that is still me if I'm not trusting in Jesus. So I, I'm not going to be harsh toward, toward you because I get it. I've been there as well. And th this also means that... Uh, the ultimate danger, the final danger for a, for a sinner, for a, for a human being, the final danger is not sin, it's unrepentance. So we've sinned, we've sinned and separated ourselves from God, but it's unrepentance that will ultimately keep us separated from God. So if we look at verse 3 and we say, that's not me, not true of me, I don't need that, then we're in danger of being outside. If we don't agree with God about who we are and come to him in repentance, we will ultimately be cast out. So Paul starts with that bad news in verse 3, but then he moves to the good news. Here's who we were. Here's the mess we had made. Verse 4, but when the goodness 
and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. That's remarkable that we were lost, we were sinful, we were rebellious, and how did God respond to our sinful rebellion? Not by saying, forget about you, I'm done with you, but by actively pursuing us, by coming after us to save us, coming after us to make us new. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And I love here in verses 4 through 7 that Paul brings the whole trinity into this work of salvation. Verse, verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. And I can't state this definitively, but almost every time in the New Testament uh, when it says God, it's referring to God the Father. If, if, he, if the writer is referring to God the Son, he's, they almost always say either Lord or Jesus or Christ or some combination of that. And so Paul calls God the Father, God our Savior. And that's surprising because we th- when we think of Savior, we think of Jesus our Savior. And in verse 6, he says that. He says, Jesus Christ our Savior so we're used to hearing about Jesus as our Savior, but Paul says, God, our, God your Father is also your Savior. The whole Trinity is working together to bring salvation. So the, God our Savior saved us, verse 5, uh, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's at work in, in saving Christians, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So the Son is also at work. So you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all working to save a people, to redeem people out of their sin and make them new. And that's what the Bible's about. That's the story of redemption in Scripture. All the way back in Genesis when God made the heavens and the earth and put Adam and Eve in the garden and Adam and Eve sinned, they rebelled against God, they rejected God. And God came and God rightly cursed them for their sin, cast them out of the garden. Even there, as he's cursing them, he turns to the serpent and curses the serpent, who is Satan, and he promises that he's going to raise up an offspring of the woman who is going to crush Satan's head. So even in the midst of that curse, God is telling us that he's actively pursuing us for salvation, that he is making a plan to save a people. And so God fulfills that promise as the Bible progresses, and we finally get to the New Testament, and we find out who that Savior is, who that offspring of the woman is, and it's Jesus. And what's remarkable is that the the offspring of the woman who's going to come save humanity is the Son of God the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who has lived in perfect fellowship with God forever in heaven, the Son Son of God leaves heaven, comes to earth to live with us and to pay for our sins, to crush Satan's head while Satan bruises his heel at the cross. So you see God the Father actively working 
actively making a plan and then acting out that plan to save his people. He sends, God the Father sends his Son, and what does the Son do? The Son gives the Holy Spirit. When people turn to Jesus, trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, trust in Jesus to take away their sins and to make them new, Jesus gives them the Holy Spirit. Verse, uh, verse 5, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. When you trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, to make you new. Your heart of stone is replaced by a heart of flesh. Your old man is replaced by the new man through the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus talks about that. You can look at John chapter 3, where Jesus talks about how the Holy Spirit comes and causes someone to be born again, regenerated. So again, God the Father is at work to save us. God the Son is at work to save us. God the Spirit is at work to save us. They're working together in perfect harmony. They're complementing each other in, in their efforts, right? There's this synergy there in, in salvation. They're agreeing with each other. They're on the same page, working to redeem us. And so Paul points us to that work of, of the Trinity. And it's enough for one member of the Trinity to work for you, right? If one member of the Trinity wants something for you, it's going to happen. But if three of it, if three of them, it's really, really, really going to happen, right? So it just shows that security that we have in God the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. And Paul says about this salvation, verse 5, he saved us not because of works, done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. God didn't save us because we were good. God made us good by saving us. God's not looking around saying, okay, where are the good ones? Where are the people who have it together? I'm going to go after them. No, God looks for people like us who are a mess, who are headed in the opposite direction. We're not saved by our works, but by his mercy. Down, down in verse 8, he says that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So as Christians, we are called to devote ourselves to good works. Christians must do good works, but not to be saved because they're saved. We, we do works of righteousness not to earn God's favor, but because we have God's favor. We devote ourselves to good works, not so that God will love us, but because God has loved us in Christ. If we can't get that order backwards. If we get the order backwards, that's works-based righteousness, and you'll go to hell. That's it. If you want to stand before God and say, this is what I've done to earn your love, it's never going to be enough. He saves us, not by works, but according to his own mercy. The whole Trinity is at work to make us new. And then 
we do good works. And then we are changed by God's grace and it, it transforms the way that we interact with the community. So the, the title of the sermon is Gripped by Grace. And what God wants for his people is he wants us to see how lost we were. He wants us to be, to be able to identify with unbelievers, to have an honest assessment of ourselves. And then he brings the light of the gospel. And when we see who we were, the glory of the gospel becomes that much brighter. God's grace to us becomes that much more beautiful, that much more desirable. And so we, we experience God's grace. We see what we were and what God has done. We see how much God loves us and how gracious he is to save us and to make us new and to stick with us, to be patient with us. And that grace drives us out to, to interact with unbelievers in a new way. And so that's verse 1 and 2 and verse 8. In verse 8, he says, The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things. So verses 3 through 7, believe what I'm saying here. This is true stuff. Insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Having been saved, give your life to good works. Give your life to walking in obedience to, G to your Lord Jesus Christ. This will, be, this will be excellent and profitable for you and excellent and profitable for others. If you will devote yourself to Jesus, it will go well with you, Paul's saying. Back up in verses 1 and 2, he gives us a list, which is helpful. He tells us, this is what it means to devote yourself to good works. This is what your life should look like as a Christian. This is how you should relate to unbelievers, even unbelievers in a dishonest, harsh, selfish culture like Crete or Iowa, right? So verse 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. What should a Christian look like? A Christian is someone who should be submissive, obedient, speak evil of no one, avoid quarrels. A Christian ought to be someone who's gentle. And then this last one, just this last one got me. Show a Christian is someone who should show perfect courtesy toward all people. That does not describe our current public discourse, does it? This is not how our culture interacts with each other. And frankly, this is not how Christians interact. This is not what many Christians are marked by. What's the reputation of the average American Christian? It's not verses 1 and 2. But Paul's saying it should be. This is who we should be. This is what we should be known for. And uh, this, is, this is really countercultural, and it, it feels, at first glance, verses 1 and 2, feel weak. Feels like, feels like Paul's telling us to just roll over. Just let people walk all over you. Be a welcome mat. That's what it is to be a Christian. 
That's not what Paul's saying. Jesus says in the Gospels that his disciples should be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. As Christians, we know the truth. We have been, we have been told right and wrong. We, we have access to reality. We, we know what's good and bad right here, right? And so as Christians, we don't give up on the truth. We don't just say, yeah, anything goes, and I'm not going to stand up for what's right or wrong. No, we, we speak the truth. We tell the truth, but we do it in a way that is gentle and courteous and patient and kind. So we are wise as serpents. We know the times. We understand the cultural context. We see what's happening around us. And we say, we say what's happening, but we do it in a way where we are innocent as doves. No one can bring a reproach against us for our character. The gospel is offensive. We should not be. The message we preach should offend people, but we should not offend people because we should be gentle, courteous messengers sharing an offensive gospel. So this looks, gent- this looks weak, but it is not weak. This is a different type of courage. This is the courage that Jesus showed at the cross, right? Reviled, slandered against, abused, wrongly treated, wrongly arrested, And he took it, showing perfect courtesy, showing gentleness, showing patience, because he understood why he was doing it. So as Christians, we ought to be marked this way. We don't get to speak to others the way that they speak to us. We're willing to to be patient. We're willing to love people when they're not loving us. And we know people that are just, we all know men and women who you look at their reputation and you think, yeah, that's, that's how I know them. This is the type of character that this person has. So imagine a church full of people who are marked by verses one and two. Imagine if Oak Hill Church were a place where the people at Oak Hill were submissive to rulers and authorities, even when they weren't happy about the decisions being made where they were obedient, where they didn't speak evil ever, they didn't quarrel, a church full of people who are gentle and courteous. Imagine what God could do here. And so as as Christians, verse 3, close where we began, as we are transformed by God's grace, we who were once foolish are now known for our godly wisdom. We who were once disobedient are now humble and teachable. We who were led astray are now following our shepherd. We, we who were slaves to our passions and pleasures are now free to love Christ and give ourselves in service to other people. And we who used to spend our time in malice and envy, passing our days in malice and envy, we now redeem our time, make the most of our time to honor Jesus. And we who were hated by others and hating one another, we're now well thought of 
by others and we lay down our lives for one another. Let's pray. Father, we can't do these things apart from your grace. We can't be gentle. We can't be obedient. We can't show courtesy toward others on our own strength. But through your washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit, through your saving work in Christ, we can be made new and we can be transformed and we can begin to demonstrate this reputation. And it doesn't bring glory to us In fact, it humbles us, but it brings great glory to you and it will be for our joy. So I pray that we would be marked by these godly characteristics as we are gripped by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.